Hey, we have so much to get through this morning. Grab a Bible. We're going to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Also, Easter is about a month away. And uh, a couple of things. We're going to start a new series next week called All Things New. That's in your uh, little packet of stuff that you got when you walked in. Uh, And there's also a yellow form that is a request for help. When we, oh, by the way, we have highly trained martial artists who hand out Bibles. Uh, So let us, so they double as our security team. Very, very intimidating uh, men and women. So uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one and follow along. Um, Easter's a month away. We want to put our best foot forward because there are people who will step foot into some weird theater-shaped building with a weird wall. Uh, who would never step foot in uh, a church any, any other time of the year. And so we want to make sure we have enough uh, parking folks and children's workers. And so here's our ask, uh, that you would begin to pray that we would make much of Jesus. Number two, that you would invite people. And number three, that you would serve. That you would come to one service and that you would serve at one service. And that yellow sheet gives you more information. If you could fill that out, tear off the bottom part for you, give the rest to us and the offering boxes in the back, that would be a huge deal. Now, Genesis chapter 2. Here's how this is going to go down this morning, brothers and sisters. We're going to have 25 minutes of pain and then 15 minutes of glory. 25 minutes of seeming How is this relevant to my life? And then 15 minutes of I should have never doubted him. All right, so Genesis chapter 2. It is so good to be back with you guys. I have missed you, Genesis 2. Thank you for very sparse applause. I appreciate that. You guys were early. They were late, but they were stronger. Genesis chapter 2. Now, In Genesis 1, what you have is this poetic repetition. I'm going to just botch that. So I'm going to move it over there. You have this poetic repetition of the phrase, it is good. So God creates, he stands back from his creation, and he saw that it was good and declared it was good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Over and over and over and over in the Genesis narrative. Then you get to chapter 2, verse 18. You read this. Then God said, it is not good. For the man to be alone. I mean, so the the poetic repetition in chapter 1 only highlights this statement in chapter 2. That the man had been created at this point. The woman had not been created. But God surveys all that he has made. And he says, it is not good that the man is alone. And all the men said? Now, God then says... I will make a helper suitable for him. And all the men said? Now, this English does a pretty bad job with this. Because it sounds like the man needs an administrative assistant, kind of a a planner. Uh, And and no, he actually needs much more help than that. So I want to look at two words, helper and suitable. Helper in Hebrew is the word ezer. And it is a very strong word. In fact, it is used of God everywhere in the Old Testament. When God rescues Israel, he is a helper to them. Three times it's used of military aid. When an army was being defeated, another army would come and help, and they were an ezer to the first army. So, does that seem like inferior to you? No, not at all. In fact, you'd have to say then God's inferior to us. Because the word literally is to surround or protect. So God looked at the man and said, it is not good that he is alone. He needs a rescuer. And all the ladies said, amen. Amen. Now, 
The word suitable is a, a Hebrew word that translates a very, or an English word that translates a very complex Hebrew phrase that means like opposite. This helper would be like opposite him. In other words, it would be enough like him, but enough different from him that when the two come together, they would form a whole. So if you take two, like two puzzle pieces, if you have two exact same puzzle pieces, do they fit together? No. But if you had two puzzle pieces from two entirely different sized puzzles, would they fit together? No. Thank you so much for four of you contributing to this conversation. The puzzle piece has to be enough alike that it's of the same puzzle, but different enough so that when they, the pieces fit together, they join in a way that forms a unity. Are you with me on this little analogy? All right, so he creates a helper suitable, enough alike the man that they fit, but enough different, uh, sufficiently different enough so that they have to join in order to be everything that God created them to be. And so God looks at the man, recognizes that the man is an image bearer of a triune God made for community, made for relationship. And what's fascinating is anybody who says all you need is God, well, that's true and that's not true. It's true in the sense that only God can meet the deepest needs of our heart and the cries of our heart, but it's not true because that same God wired us to need each other. And so it was not good that the man was alone. He creates a helper suitable. Now notice when uh, Eve is created, verse 23 of Genesis 2, the man does not bust out into scientific language. He does not say, gee, her features are very symmetrical. The man busts out in some poetry. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there, there are moments only poetry can capture. The man said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now what's interesting is in the ancient world, a a man would not leave his father and mother. The woman would leave her family and join the husband's family. But here what you have is, is the invitation, almost command for a man to leave his family, for the woman to leave her family, and for them to start something entirely new. An entity that didn't exist before. And so part of the reason why some marriages struggle is because either the man hasn't fully left his tribe, or the woman hasn't fully left her tribe, and they haven't yet fully formed a new thing. That's one of the reasons, like, the Bible uses the word one flesh. It's not just uh, one flesh sexually, but it's now one, like, when we talk about being flesh and blood, someone's flesh and blood, to me, you're related to them. So you leave your family on this side, you leave your family on this side, and then you form an entirely new thing here, an entirely new entity that did not previously exist, where two now, from different flesh, become one flesh. And the scriptures say when that happens, they are united. And the Hebrew means glued together. And notice the phrase. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his what? You know what, brothers and sisters? It is fascinating that I was here early this morning. The same hour you lost, I lost. And yet here I was. 
trying to sound intelligent this morning, which you don't even have to do. I just, I, all I want is just a recognition of aliveness, okay? <laughs> that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his. Now, that's the first use of the word wife we've seen. I mean, we were just talking about man and woman. Now, it's man and wife. And if there's a wife involved, what does that make the man? A husband. So all of a sudden, the Bible opens with a marriage, but it's not just a legal piece of paper. It's the recognition of the deepest, truest joining of two people from different flesh into one new thing called one flesh. Now, what becomes fascinating is this idea of marriage becomes the preeminent way God describes his relationship with his people. Go to the book of Exodus. Now, here's where pain starts. Maybe you're thinking pain already started, bro. This is where we're going we're gonna to plow through. So if you're slow in turning the pages, we're going to go to Exodus, then Jeremiah, then Hosea, then John, then Revelation, then Ephesians. So I just want you to know that's where we're headed. Exodus chapter 6. Was that helpful? No. Not at all. Exodus chapter 6. Therefore, verse 6. This is God speaking to Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7. Notice this. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now, the word take in Hebrew, you're fascinated to know, is the word lakah. It means to marry. I take you to be my husband. I take you to be my wife. When God speaks to his people about his purposes for them, he says, I take you, and he uses marital language. In fact, in ancient Hebrew wedding ceremonies, one of the first things you would do is lakah. You would declare publicly, I take this person to be my spouse. Now jump to chapter 19. The wedding language continues. See, the book of Exodus is really about, there are two big things we remember from it. Number one is Charlton Heston delivering the people out of slavery. Some of you are like, who? And then number two, the Ten Commandments are given right in the middle of the book. And, and we really misunderstand the Ten Commandments because we don't understand the framework in which we, they are given. So chapter 19, God delivers them out of slavery. He now has them at the foot of a mountain called Sinai. And he says to them, verse 5, chapter 19, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all the nations you will be my treasured what? Possession. Now the word possession is the word segula. Uh, the second step in an ancient Jewish wedding ceremony was segula. It was the public declaration that I could choose anybody else, but I choose you. Notice, you're not fully dazzled. Notice verse 10, same chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. The word wash is the word mikvah. Mikvah was what a, a, a bride-to-be would do the night before her wedding. It was a ceremonial washing where she would be immersed in water and it wasn't a hygiene thing. It was a ceremonial thing declaring her pure without wrinkle or spot or blemish. And it was the Father's promise 
that the bride had undergone her mikvah and was, in fact, what the mikvah promised, that she was really pure, that she was without spot or wrinkle or blemish. So it's fascinating. God delivers them out and he promises to take them using marital language. And then he declares, Segula, you are my possession. And then he has them undergo this ceremonial washing that brides would do before their wedding. You're not fully dazzled. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, this is when God's going to speak to the tribe. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. Now, a thick cloud in the Hebrew Scriptures always is used in reference to the presence of God Almighty. And so what the Hebrews would do is they wanted the symbol of a thick cloud over them whenever they would engage in covenant making with each other. And so Jewish weddings included something called a hoopah. Say hoopah. A hoopah was a Jewish prayer shawl, and it symbolized the thick cloud. So now you have the people. God says, I will take you. You will be my possession. Wash in preparation. And now you get married under my presence. You're still not dazzled. Go to chapter 20. Verse 1. The highlight of a Jewish wedding was something called the ketubah. It was the promises the bride and the groom would make to each other about how to live together. What are the Ten Commandments? So we have this very false understanding that God was mean, and then Jesus came, and now God's happy. Right? That's kind of our theology. Or or we say the Old Testament was a book of law, and, and the New Testament is a testament of grace. Well, that's not true. When... Were the Ten Commandments given to Israel? Before they were rescued or after? Before they were chosen or after? After. So this is given to a people already redeemed. And what I'm trying to draw your attention to is these commandments don't represent the arbitrary moral whims of some malicious God, but instead are framed in terms of covenant duties of a bride to a husband. In a marriage ceremony. So, God spoke all these words under the hoopah. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in, in a bridal sense, doesn't that, doesn't that make perfect sense? I mean, don't we promise today when we, in our own weddings, I will love you and no other? So the first of the Ten Commandments is you will have no other lover but me. What God was interested in, which I find so fascinating, of all the ways that he could describe his relationship to his people, he uses bridal imagery of a husband towards a wife. Go to the book of Jeremiah. Now the story of Israel, as you know, they're very... (laughs) Fickle is the nice way of saying it. Faithless might be more accurate. And I'm so glad the people of God today have improved dramatically. You know what I mean? And so, and so, what I want you to see is how God frames their rebellion against him. Notice, Jeremiah chapter 3. I can't wait for you to get there. I'm sorry, there's so much to cover. I'm going to start reading in 1, 2, 3, Verse 6, Jeremiah 3. During the reign of King Josiah, 
The Lord said to me, the prophet Jeremiah, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and committed adultery there. He's referencing the practice the Israelites had of worshiping in the high places. Those were places in Israel that were above, obviously, other places in Israel. And there would be monuments there to foreign gods. Of all the ways that God could speak of their rebellion, he uses the phrase adultery. In fact, notice verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of what? Of divorce. So of all the betrayal that God feels, he frames it in divorcing Israel. And yet, he never gives up on her. Go to the book of Hosea. I'm not waiting for you to get there. It's going to be trouble. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Yeah, you might as well just abandon the turning. I appreciate the effort, but we gotta, we got to cook. This is all intro, by the way. We're not even to the point yet. And some of you said, please, Jesus, help him. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this nation is guilty of unfaithfulness to me. So God says, hey, I'm going to tell Israel that I'm not a big fan of their worshiping other gods. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one of my holy men, a prophet, I'm going to have him marry a prostitute. And I'm going to say, listen, you be faithful to her in the same way I'm faithful to Israel. That's how he frames his relationship. I mean, do we, of all the images we have of Almighty God, a heartsick husband? Is that the image that comes to mind? And in fact, chapter 2, he promises he's going to win her back. Verse 14, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. Verse 16, in that day you will call me my husband and no longer my master. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness. I mean, of all the images God could use, go to the book of John. See, that's not just an Old Testament thing. Bridal language is all over the teaching ministry of Jesus. I can't even wait for you to get there. Chapter, one, chapter 14, verse 1. Okay. In five, four, three, two, one. Chapter 14, verse 1. This is the night Jesus was betrayed. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now, we've talked about this before. That is exact language that you would use in a betrothal ceremony. So a young Jewish man, 18, 17, 18, 19, would say to a young Jewish woman, 13, 12 maybe, once they were betrothed, he would take a year to go build a room at his father's house. That would be their bridal chamber. That's where they would live until they had a home of their own. So you would literally hear Jewish boys saying to Jewish girls, I go to prepare a place for you. So of all the pictures you could get of God's relationship to his people, you get marriage all over the place. Go to the book of Revelation. Hit the table of weights and measures and turn left. Chapter 21. 
God, come on. We're cooking. This is still intro. Revelation 21. We're going to be here till about 3 o'clock. I hope that is okay. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? Bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Earlier, two chapters earlier, in chapter 19, everyone's singing about something called the wedding of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb in the book of Revelation? The answer always is Jesus, right? So the Bible begins with Adam and Eve and a marriage, and it ends with Jesus and his people in marriage. Do you see this? Do you see the predominant, and I've picked just a few verses, the predominant picture we get of God's relationship to his people is a wedding covenant. Do you see this? Go to Ephesians chapter 5, and now relevance is five minutes away, brothers and sisters, Five minutes. You don't even sound excited. Ephesians chapter 5. No, no, that's forced. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we have talked about the infamous submit passage where wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Grammatically, in Greek, English does a horrible job of translating it because we put a paragraph break and a period after the first verse that says submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. In Greek, it says... You're, the predominant posture of every disciple of Jesus is to submit to each other, which means placing the interests of another ahead of your own. But there's no period. It's comma, wives, do this to your husbands. Would that have been revolutionary in the first century? I'm sorry, young man, but no. And the re, but I appreciate, I, I wanted to say yes just because you played with me. No. I'm sorry. In the first century, wives, the only thing a husband owed a wife were children and a roof over her head. That's it. It was commonly expected that every Roman man would have several mistresses and that love and romance, he did not owe her marital counseling or date nights or retreats. He owed her none of that. Wives were considered inferior. So wives submit to your husband. Well, yeah. What would have been revolutionary is in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Which would have been revolutionary enough, but then he keeps going. Just as Christ loved the church and did what? Did he just say he loved her? No, he gave himself up for her. Now you can see why there were many more women followers of Jesus than men followers of Jesus. Seriously, in the first century. I mean, this, no ancient writer of any history, religion, philosophy ever said anything like this. That until you have died for your wife, you have room to improve. Nobody said stuff like this. And then he keeps going. To make her holy, cleansing her by the mikvah with water through the word. To present her to himself as a radiant church. So he's using husband and wife language, but now he's using Jesus and church language. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. They're one flesh after all. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ is the church. For we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Which, yeah, I don't, 
that's a mystery. Because I thought we were talking about husbands and wives the whole time. Husbands, love your wives. And he gives a couple of arguments. Number one, dude, love her like Jesus loves the church. Number two, think of her as your own body, your one flesh. So who doesn't love his own body? And then he quotes Genesis 2, and you think, okay, we're wrapping up about husbands and wives. And he says, no, 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 I'm actually talking about Jesus and his church. What? Yes, it's a great mystery. But think about it. Is the point of marriage, marriage? See, our God is a God of props. Now, here's what that means. Whenever God knows we're forgetful, and we're frail. And so whenever he promises something, he gives the physical embodiment a sign, a prop, to remind us of that spiritual truth. So I promise not to flood the earth anymore. So I give you rainbow. My body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. I give you communion. Your old self is dead. A new self has been resurrected. So I give you Baptism. Interestingly, the love of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, is the prop that God uses to talk about his love for people. Of all the images God could give, the point of marriage isn't marriage. I have great news for us, brothers and sisters. The job of your spouse isn't to make you happy. They can't do that, as many of you have already learned. <laughs> the image is that a husband would so, be so devoted and sacrificial to his wife, and a wife would respond with grace and her sacrifice, and that they, in this mutually giving and sacrificing sort of devotion, would be a living and breathing example of the gospel of Jesus. That literally following this Jesus makes the most sacred institution we have, it totally reshapes it. So that what the world aches to see is proof that God is love. And one of the arguments he gives, he gives the unity of the church, the love they have for each other, and then the third one is the marriage of a devoted disciple and their spouse. And see, this wars completely against our understanding of marriage. I mean, it used to be you got married to have kids, you got married to, to further the family line, you got married as a way of growing up. Now, marriage is viewed exclusively in terms of meeting my own needs. It's just another consumer item. There was a study done, 2002, why men don't commit and what they said they were looking for, these guys who didn't commit, they were looking for something called a soulmate. And, and what was the definition of a soulmate? Well, the lesser definition, there were two factors in soulmate. The first one was unbelievable sexual chemistry. The second one was more important, and it was called compatibility. Now, that sounds really healthy until you learn what they mean by compatibility. Compatibility meant they don't want to change me. They accept me as I am, which is good, 
but never coupled with they don't want to change me. I don't have to change my lifestyle to make room for them. I don't have to give up my freedom. They are happy and healthy and well-adjusted enough to not be needy. So let me ask you, does such a creature exist? (laughs) So, unmarried folks, I have such good news for you. There is no such thing as a soulmate. There is no such thing as a person who will complete you, meet every need, and breathe you you with just happiness and unfettered encouragement. What there is instead are sinners being redeemed by the grace of Jesus who will, if you get it right, partner with you in putting Jesus on display to a lost and hurting world. That's what you get. And I'm telling you, this romantic fiction of a soulmate has caused more divorces, more affairs, and more unmarried people just consuming singles after singles because, oh, no, no, this person has flaws. They can't be the one. This person has flaws. They can't be the one. This person has flaws. They can't be the one. Or then you get married and you discover you actually married a sinner. And every single marriage in this room underwent the following morning. You wake up and you go, my God, what have I done? (laughs) And nobody says this. Nobody talks about it. It's perfectly normal because what happens is you recognize who you thought you married wasn't who you married. Because in dating, we can't help but pretend and put our best foot forward. So what marriage does, and it doesn't matter who you're married to, It's marriage itself. It puts you in such proximity to another human being that they can't help but see every flaw. Right? But if you think the purpose of marriage is your own personal fulfillment, then in that moment you'll be tempted to think you made a mistake, you married the wrong person. And you'll be tempted to swap that person out for somebody else. And so brothers and sisters, the reason we started in Genesis, is the idea that a man and a woman created in the covenant, one flesh, that is a picture that God uses all over the Bible for his love for his people. And when his disciples are known more for their hypocrisy and their political stances than they are for the way that Jesus really makes a difference in real life, Might I suggest that the romantic fiction of the soulmate has infected us as well. And what is needed is a recapturing of the epic nature that the most beautiful, salient, revolutionary gift we can give the world is of a man dying to himself for the sake of a woman and a woman dying to herself for the sake of a man. Two people who know every single thing about each other and choose to love each other anyway. I mean, isn't that the gospel? He knows everything about us and moves in grace. While we were sinners, he died. And the invitation is for husbands and wives in an infinitesimal way to begin to embody the gospel. Not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. My wife... I remember the first time I held hands with her. The electricity was crackling in the air. 
wind swept out of the north. I don't know. But you remember the tinglys, the butterflies? You know, I mean, it was like, yes, there was some sort of, there was some sort of like just massive alchemy that took place in that moment. I hold her hand now, 12 years later, and is that same chemistry still there? Nope, not at all. <laughs> no. Married folks, folks, am I lying? No. But let me tell you what is there instead. I was holding her hands the other morning, and I was looking at them. These are the hands that after 12 years have given birth to three children. These are the hands that have held me during countless moments of pain and disappointment. These are the hands that have sacrificed to build a household where our children can flourish. These are the hands that have made room for me to be all that God is calling me to be. So the chemistry, the shallow and weak chemistry of newness has been replaced with a chemistry altogether more realistic and profound. The chemistry of having lived and having loved and wept and laughed and served and sacrificed. And after all of that, saying yet again, out of all the nations, I choose you. Knowing everything about you and her knowing everything about me, I choose you again and again and again and again and again. This, the irony is this. For the unmarried folks among us, there is such cynicism about marriage because the myth of a soulmate the idea that there's the one out there who will complete me perfectly causes them to just swap out dating partners over and over and over and over and never commit to one of them. And the myth of the one in our marriages causes us after 10 or so years just to think, well, if I swapped her out or I swapped him out, that newness, I mean, isn't that what affairs are? Settling for the shallow adrenaline chemistry and forsaking the profound and realistic chemistry. And so brothers and sisters, I just felt so, I felt a profound weight to share this with you. I need it. And we're not talking perfection and we're not talking that it's easy, but there is one promise given to married people in the Bible. Do you know what it is? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's arguing singleness is a gift. He says, in marriage, you will have trouble. And all the married people said? And the irony is that if you die to soulmate and you learn to serve, you find personal fulfillment. In the same way that Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. That is true in marriage too. So here's what I'd like to do. This is going to be really awkward. Awkward does not scare me. <laughs> as many of you know. I'm going to, I'd like to ask the unmarried people to pray over the married people. And then the married people to pray over the unmarried people. I don't believe 
that married and unmarried are the most important designations in our community. Would you agree? Because there are married people who would love to be unmarried, and there are unmarried people who'd love to be married. <laughs> if you are unmarried, and I don't care if you're 12 or you're 1,200, <laughs> would you stand up right where you are? I know every other service I had them come down forward, but I feel like it would take way too long. All right, now, look around if you'd like. I'm just saying, there's a lot of you here. Okay, I mean, just, I'm just saying, what, engaged? Okay, son, you better listen to this message three or four times. All right, married people, close your eyes. The reason I asked you unmarried folks to stand up isn't to single you out, pardon the pun, but to ask you to serve your married brothers and sisters because they're in the thick of war. That there is literally warfare against their unions. There is war that exists against their fidelity to each other. There is war that exists in the integration and wholeness. There is warfare that exists over them that many of us can only begin to speculate about. There are wounds that pile up over the course of years that literally need a divine act of grace to forgive. So, married folks, would you just close your eyes? Unmarried folks, here's the nice thing about praying for people. You can fake it. So, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray out loud. If you don't want to, just close your eyes and move your lips, and no one, everyone's going to go, man, that person is so spiritual. Okay? So if you're not comfortable with this, it's totally okay. But I have a feeling there'll be a few of us who want to pray over our brothers and our sisters. So I'm going to count to three, and we're just going to start praying all together out loud over them. And then after a few moments, uh, I'll close this. And then, um, and then we'll have you sit down and the married folks sit up and pray over you, okay? Awesome, he said to himself. All right, ready? Go ahead and extend a hand towards and over people right next to you. One, two, three. Lord Jesus, we pray by the power and authority of your name and your kingdom that you would bless and protect the marriages, the unions that are represented here. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and give grace to forgive would you give grace to reconcile? Would you give courage and faith? Lord Jesus, may the men and the women here begin to recapture this missional aspect of their marriages, that we need them to stay together. We need them to learn to live with one another. And so God, would you give grace? I'm thinking this many unmarried people should be louder, but that's just me personally. <laughs> So, Lord Jesus, by the power and authority of your gospel in your name, we ask your spirits filling upon those who are married, that they would embody in ways that are completely supernatural the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus to each other. And all my unmarried brothers and sisters said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Married folks, stand up. You... No need to be talking. 
Unless you're two unmarried people talking to each other. Our unmarried people are, in the church, usually treated as second-class citizens. We don't want to treat them as that. Singleness, according to the Scriptures, is a gift. Now, for some, it is a very painful gift. And so we want to pray. There are some who desperately want to be married. Some have been divorced. Some have been widowed. We want to pray comfort and grace over them. Some are very young and are fighting the beginnings of purity and fidelity and allegiance to Jesus. Some of them are warring about their self-image. Am I of value if I don't have somebody who's significant next to me? And so, married brothers and sisters, would you pray courage and faith and healing over them? Would you pray that we as a community would honor and teach and bless their unmarriedness. And that ultimately, that our prayer for them was that they would find, in whatever season they're in, the joy of the Lord Jesus in His service for their life. So, would you extend a hand? And again, you can pray, or you can fake. But I'm expecting married people to be a bit more bold. (laughs) Okay, on this one. I'm just, I'm not going to lie about my expectations. All right, so one, two, three. Father God, we recognize the great battle that rages for the purity of heart and of body and of mind, for the many who are unmarried. Lord, we want to hold out a picture of what marriage is that is realistic and that is compelling and that serves to inspire our brothers and sisters, to see their self-worth not in their dating relationships or lack thereof, but instead finds value, meaning, and significance rooted in your love for them. And Lord Jesus, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come and you would bring healing for those who've been hurt, that you would bring, draw near to the brokenhearted, to the lonely, Lord, it says in the Psalms that you place the lonely into families. And we pray, Lord, whether they're families of peers, of friends, God, we just pray your comfort and grace, but courage most of all. They would receive this season as a gift. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, We gather, agree, Lord, that regardless of life station, we want to serve and honor, we want to bring glory to Jesus by presenting ourselves before you yet again, frail, weak, and yet hopeful that you who began a good work will bring it to completion. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remake us more and more into your image and that you would give us grace to be the people you've called us to be. And the entire tribe said, stand up, we're going to worship together.